Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Now is the absolute best time to find a seat. I'm Kathleen McLean. I'm a programmer here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And I'd like to welcome you here, acknowledging that we're gathered on Mississauga territory, on land that's been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. It's wonderful to see so many of you here for tonight's program. And I'd like to introduce the Michael and Sonia Kerner, director of the Art Gallery Ontario, Stefan Yost, to get us started. Thank you very much and welcome uh, to the AGO. Um, I'm thrilled that you're all here. And we've got a, you know, a really remarkable program tonight. Um, Anthropocene, which we're gonna learn a lot about that term. Um, and we're gonna really hear it from three artists, Edward Bertinsky, Jennifer Bechwell, and Nick Dupontier. Um, they're three amazing Toronto-based artists. And what I really appreciate about their work is that they're framing global conversations from here in Toronto. They have a really international projects, global perspective, but they're doing it rooted here. Um, we're gonna learn a lot more about them over the next years because um, the world is really paying attention to many of the issues that um, they're considering and engaging. Um, lectures like this happen because people support them, and I want to give a special thank you to Penny Rubinoff for support of the AGO and the Contact Photo Festival. So a round of applause. Our curatorial department is led by Sophie Hackett, who, as we know, is amazing. Um, she recently reinstalled a gallery right when you come off the entrance because we're trying to kind of foreground photography here at the AGO, and she's been joined um, in the curatorial team by a new hire, Dr. Julie Crooks, who's our amazing new curator of um, photography as well. So Sophie and Julie uh, will be doing really strong work over the years to come. And I want to, again, thank the photo um, Contact Photo Festival. There is an exhibition called Free Black North, which if you haven't seen it, it's um, it's pretty profound, it's pretty complicated, and the tintypes are real gems. So I just encourage us all to see that. Um, I'm going to invite up to the stage uh, Sarah Dinnick, who's the chair of the Contact uh, Photo Festival. Sarah. Thank you, Stefan. Good evening, everyone. I am so honored to be standing here representing the Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival as board chair. I have to say May is definitely my favorite month in this city. Uh, from small cafes and galleries to subway stations and billboards across the city uh, to, to major cultural institutions like this one, our focus this year is on Canada. And of course, it is powerful partnerships like the one between the AGO and Contact that help us make such a vibrant festival. So thank you to the Art Gallery of Ontario. This year, in partnership with the AGO, we are showing three exhibitions here. Mark Lewis, Canada, Photography Collection, 1840s to the 1880s, and Free Black North. And of course, we are partnering to present this wonderful lecture series, the AGO Contact International Photography Talks. These talks would not be possible without the gracious support of Penny Rubinoff, so I'd like to thank her again, wherever she is. Thank you, Penny. And a most sincere thanks to our title sponsor, Scotiabank, 
their support of the festival knows no boundaries. We would also like to acknowledge our funders, Celebrate Ontario, Canada Council for the Arts, Ontario Cultural Attractions Fund, the Ontario Arts Council, La Fondation Emmanuel Gattuso, and the R. Howard Webster Foundation and Toronto Arts Council. I would be remiss if I did not thank the participating artists whose distinct and diverse voices resonate and advance the cultural vitality of our city. It is their vision and commitment that we celebrate in May. We are proud to have played a key role in making Toronto an international centre of photography. And I thank you for coming this evening, and I hope to see you all in the galleries this month. And now I would like to introduce to you the Curator of Photography at the AGO, Sophie Hackett. Thank you very much, uh, Sarah, and I will keep my remarks brief because really you are here to see the main event, our artists this evening. Um, I want to just reiterate the, our, our thanks to Contact in particular, uh, to Sarah and the team, Darcy, Bonnie, the staff and board there. Um, you know, I think it's, it's fitting that this talk be the first of the uh, 2017 AGO Contact International Photography Talks. We've partnered with this festival uh, almost every year since its inception, uh, 30 years ago. You know, Contact's ambition is really mirrored our own here at the AGO, and it's been really thrilling to see the festival grow as our own collection and exhibitions program has also grown. So with that, with that I'm going to introduce our three uh, extraordinary artists who will join me here on stage and we'll have a conversation about their latest project and dare I say perhaps their most significant yet. Um, Jennifer Bachewal, Nick Depensier, and Ed Bertinsky have been working for many years. You're familiar with their work uh, and yet they keep us uh, engaged, they keep us uh, interested in what they're doing and as Stefan in indicated, they frame a global conversation, they keep us interested in uh, the things that we are um, concerned about, worried about, curious about and show, show the, these things to us in ways that um, we couldn't have imagined. So would you please join me in welcoming our three artists on stage. What a great crowd. Thank you all so much for coming. Amazing, Amazing crowd. Um, so of course we're, we're here. The, the title of the talk tonight is Anthropocene and we're going to talk about this latest project uh, very soon. But I think it's, it's notable that you've been working together now for many years. Uh, and in fact, this project um, inaugurates a new collective. But let's, let's roll it back a, a few years and talk about how you first began uh, to work together. Um, what, is the or what, are, what are the origins and history of your collaboration? Um, well, I'll start off by the fact that I have been collaborating in, in many ways uh, in my work, especially when I started traveling internationally and I'd have to use assistants in other countries that translate for me, uh, researchers as well. But where it got really interesting is when um, 
I had a filmmaker follow, follow me around, Jeff Powis, and was trying to make the, put the film together. It was his first real effort in that area, and he didn't quite get the, he, he didn't quite, quite get the right kind of, um, you know, feel of the film. So um, he went around to see if somebody else could pick up the footage and, and make a film. And it went around to a few people, and then Jennifer, and I think Nick saw it as well. And um, then it was like, okay, we think there's something there. Uh, I think you, you, Jennifer and Nick both like my work. And I liked the idea, and I saw what they did and, and what they were working on. And I, there was a Shelby Lee Adams film on, on uh, working with a photographer, and I liked how that was treated, very, very smart film. And uh, so I said, okay, let's start working together. And I was kind of interested in trying to um, get some of the ideas in, in, in the film is how I work where you don't tell the story too deeply. You just let the images carry the weight. And working with Jennifer and Nick was amazing uh, in that I was learning. And I always liked film and I was learning a lot. Uh, but it was Jennifer directing, Nick producing, and I was more the subject, and my work was really the authoring thread of, of the uh, Manufactured Landscapes movie, but what happened is those stills all of a sudden found deeper context through film. And when I saw that, I got very excited, and then from that point on, we kept talking about uh, possibly making a film together. And then there was a discussion of oil at one point, and then that didn't quite come through, and then water became uh, a project that we then co-directed and worked together on. Jennifer and Nick, what's the story from your side? <laughs> yeah, it, it, do, does everything happen for a reason? I don't know. It was obviously a fruitful meeting on, on manufactured landscapes, and we decided that um, uh, not only did we see the world in a lot of the same ways and held very important a lot of the same issues, especially environmental issues, but there were a lot of things in our respective practices that I think were, were, were intriguing. And, and documentary film, I, I've always really appreciated that it has this, this foot in the journalistic tradition, the more vocational sort of uh, prescribed, um, uh, there's an honesty to, to that side. And then the other foot is in this, in a way, almost purely creative if you want it to be. There's, there's a really wide spectrum of practice in what gets called documentary film. Um, and that, that, um, that purely creative is interesting too. And I think that's the intersection where to work with someone like an artist, who you come from a documentary tradition in photography and, and extend that to, uh, to, to how, you know, your, your sort of updating of that. Um, there's a lot of really fruitful intersections there, uh, and that's the kind of the, that's what became the friendship and this collaboration. But it started with that film. And I should mention that the the this this film that we're working on as part of this project, Anthropocene or Anthropocene, is the third in the trilogy of films. So, Manufactured Landscapes, Watermark, and then this one. And it does, in some ways, feel like a bit of a a culmination of uh, of everything that we were trying to do. And I think we're going to look at a little bit of manufactured landscapes, and then I'll come back and 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 describe the struggle <laughs> of uh, of of that film and why it was a struggle. Right. We can cue the clip, please.
So when I said struggle, I don't mean in a bad way, because it's all, all, you know, it, it was a struggle in a good way, but there was, there were a couple of things that were, that really preoccupied me. And the first one was, you know, to do a kind of portrait of an artist or a biography of an artist, there are all kinds of pitfalls that you can fall into. And I didn't want to do that. And thank God Ed didn't want to do that either. And, and, but the, the biggest challenge was how do you represent one medium intelligently in another medium? And we grappled with that a lot. And, and talking with Peter Mettler, who was our cinematographer, I mean, some of the conversations range from Peter was like, let's not show any of Ed stills in the film. Let's just have film. And I said, no, I want to show some stills in the film. But if we're showing the photographs... I just didn't know that. <laughs> you, you can take that up with Peter. But, um, you know... The, the, if we're just showing them to say these are the pictures and here's the artist who took those pictures, what's the point of doing that? And so there was a real question of how to do this. And if, if any of you have seen that film, the opening shot of that film is a perfect expression um, of trying to convey scale in time. It is a nine minute shot, one, one continuous shot. Uh, on a factory floor. And when we did that, I knew immediately that that was going to be the beginning of the film because it, it did that. It, 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 it expressed one medium in another. This clip is interesting because it also draws attention to the, I mean, we're gonna talk about ethics, but the, the representation, the, the issue of representation, you don't know what frame you're looking at. First you're in a scene and you're, you get sort of involved in that scene and then you realize, oh, this is being kind of arranged because somebody is taking a photograph and then you're in a gallery of the person who is encountering that photograph. So it kind of 
sort of runs the gamut of what the representation is and the experience of the representation, which I feel is something that we always have to draw attention to, either implicitly or explicitly uh, in, in film. So that, that, that gives a sense of that. Nick, do you want to add anything to, to that? I, I think just that, I mean, Ed's, Ed's photographs are, they imply narratives. If you've seen them, they're so big and at such high resolution that you, you can almost follow plot lines when you, when you go in and look at the people and what's going on. Um, and so that's an interesting starting point then to extend those narratives in a time-based medium in, in film. Um, and I think part of our answer to that in a film like Manufactured Landscapes was to give lots and lots of space and time and to try and replicate that experience you have in a gallery where um, there's a dialogue that goes back and forth with a hanging work of art. Um, hopefully in manufactured landscapes, there's sometimes that same dialogue where it's not, it's not this sort of wash of exposition or people talking or, or information, but you can go back and forth with it. And I think that you bring something to that then as the viewer, uh, your own thoughts participate in, in time. While the, while the film is playing. And I just, if I could add one thing to that also, is that what I liked uh, that was happening when I started seeing the film come together is that in many ways that when you just see work on the wall, on a wall, you have to kind of complete the meaning. You, you, don't, you might have a label of where it is, but, but, but the more you know and the more you're informed, the more you can kind of gather from the work of art or from the thing you see on the wall. And the way, and unlike a kind of call it a, a more straightforward, straight up documentary like a, a Michael Moore where you know, he's got a point he's trying to make and he's creating a didactic and these are the good guys and these are the bad guys and he's setting them up against each other. This is more the way art works, I found. So it's not truly, I always found it wasn't like a clean documentary in the way you know it. It's, it's part art film. I think it's just experiential and you flow through it and the music helps you feel how the images, you know, are, how you're thinking about the images and and the music helps define or the, the emotion. Even the dialogue, really, that, that you yeah. capture in the film, too. The, so you move from this manufacturer's landscapes where you're making a film about a photographer um, to Watermark, which is a film that you worked on together where you had a co-credit, Ed. Um, I think we have another clip to screen, so why don't we screen that and we can talk about it. Cue the clip, please.
you set up, that's really the, the opening few minutes of the film, right? So you set up a very striking contrast between the water and the desert, um, including the human individual, Dona Innocencia. So we can see the sort of visual differences already even between manufactured landscapes and watermark. But can you tell us about what was, how did you work differently? What did, or did you work differently? <laughs> we, it was different. Yeah, I mean, um, taking a cue from Ed's water essay in photography, um, and you should tell this story, but uh, one thing you'll notice is that um, we became untethered from our terrestrial bounds, uh, often because the way to tell the story of water is harder to tell on the ground. Um, and so I would say we kind of worked out a division of labor quite organically, and. Um, uh, for that more really big, broad, almost diagrammatic telling of the story of water in a number of places, that's one of them, you see the boat shot in the end, it became about um, uh, uh, helicopters and getting high enough to really tell that, that story. Um, and Ed certainly took a lead uh, for a lot of that and, and we would share helicopter time to get that amazing perspective. Um, and then to follow the narratives on the ground, that's just me and Jen with Donna and Achencia. It's as small and, and transparent um, uh, as possible, not letting the machinations of, of the production get in the way, uh, you know, to, to the greatest extent possible. And so that, that's often what would happen. And then we'd, we'd come together and, and talk again and, and go out in whatever locations we were in. Ed would spend all day waiting for the exact right light for the wide view, and then Nick and I would be running around in the rice paddies, <laughs> finding people to talk to, and actually trying to, um, as, as Nick said, kind of express and tease out that narrative. But there was also something about, um, because our films are not very, uh, because they're not didactic, they're not expository, uh, and more experiential, and we'll talk a bit more about why we think that's important. And in a way, manufactured landscapes, the impact that it had on people and it was a bit of a surprise to us and, and made us realize, oh, this is something that we should keep exploring together. But there is illumination through juxtaposition, and it's kind of an obvious one there, but it happens all throughout the film where 
by putting two things together, they, they, they cast a different light uh, that, that, that you wouldn't notice if, if they were not put together. And it becomes another way of conveying information and it's something that we really did as a thread through the film. And from my point of view as well, I mean, when Jen joined me on the uh, China trip, and it was a, about three weeks uh, with Peter Matler, um, that was my last trip. That was like uh, my fifth trip, and I was getting the completion work to do the China book in a China show, um, and I had to have it, that was my last chance. Um, and, and so a lot of the material that was, uh, and the locations had already been determined. Um, when it came to Watermark, I was about maybe half or two thirds of the way through the actual research and where I'm going and what, I'm, and what I wanted to shoot. And one of the keys to my research is I'm looking for, um, whether it's a dam or, uh, or whether it's a factory, I'm looking for the largest expressions of that uh, anywhere in the world. So I'm using the world as my kind of palette. And so that research, I'm using teams, and, 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 and then when we decided to co-produce, or co-direct, then part of that research also started to fold over as well. So we started collaborating more closely as to how and where, and, and in, in that case also, some things ended up in the book that never made it to the film. Things made it in the film that never made it into the book. So there was a lot more fluidity as to, it wasn't like a precise thing, it's like what works in what context. And I think that was also really interesting that you know, we had, there were differences in, in, in the expressions of the, of the project as well. So as you take on this new, this new project, you're finding that, so from the beginning you're working, you found the idea, you found the, you know, the research is finding that things are more joint, more, um, in, I don't know, intermeshed, entwined. Well, they are, and it's also kind of complicated because as we talk about this, there's a, a, a number of different expressions to this Anthropocene project. So we're, we're, um, we're in a situation often where we're, you know, we're, we're trying to convey a context and we're trying to find what is the best way of conveying this context experientially. Is it photography, film? Is it video installation? Is it, is it virtual reality? And some of these things we're gonna talk about. And that is, uh, that, th that becomes, it's kind of a complicated thing because we're going, we're traveling with a lot of different cameras and different experts who are helping us with these different forms. So it is intermeshed in some way. And and uh, at what point did you decide to call yourselves a collective? About a year ago, I think. We haven't really talked about it. It's a little uh, embarrassing. Not embarrassing, but just kind of we don't really know what we're. What, do you want to take a stab at that? <laughs> uh, so obviously the fact that we don't have an answer is the reason why we're calling ourselves a collective and it I mean it, it, there's um, I think in this day and age especially with a lot of press, pressing issues which motivate a lot of our our work um, there isn't time for silos anymore and for these strict delineations of things uh, um, it's got to be the quickest, most intuitive uh, way to tell a story, taking a cue from the, the material that's in front of you, that you've identified in research or that you think is, is, is going to be strong. Um, and any one of us can jump in um, and best idea wins, I think, in a lot of those contexts, obviously bringing 
all of our respective experience uh, in, in in the things that that we're bringing. But um, I think it's 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 a semantic argument about how we're working together, which is uh, very lots of points of intersection. And trying to sort of move beyond traditional ideas of authorship too. I mean, this because this project is inspired by science in in uh, and, and and a kind of interconnection of art and science in some way. You know, you read a scientific paper and there's 30 authors to it, right? There, there's, there's, there's a sense of collective ownership or collective authorship, and that was kind of intriguing to us too, because, you know, I mean, it's been, I don't know, when, how many years has it been? It's been over 10 years that we've been working together, so we trust each other, and, and we don't really fight, um, but we, we, we discuss a lot, and, and we, we seem to have this, uh, the, the relationship isn't over yet. We, that's, that's why we're pushing forward with this, because we feel like we still have stuff to do together. We hope there isn't a breakup anytime soon. <laughs> um, so you know, we're, really, we're at the point of talking about this new, this new project, which is you, you call the Anthropocene. How many people in the audience have heard that word before? Okay. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. That is pretty How many good. is that? I would say like uh, almost half. About yeah. forty percent, thirty. <laughs> Put your hands up again. <laughs> we don't fight, though, so it's okay. All right. Well, for the rest of the room that didn't raise their hands, does one of you want to uh, talk to us about what it actually, what it does mean? Um, well, I think we first started talking about. Do we have the slide, please? Uh, you know, um, we first started talking about this work uh, word about four years ago, and there was always this nervousness, like, could we make a, f a film um, you know, called The Anthropocene when nobody knows what the word means? And, and how dangerous is that? Because it is a word that's been minted about 12 years ago. And kind of just as a, as a kind of an elevator pitch on what the word is, is 65 million years ago, an asteroid hits the planet about six kilometers in diameter off the, uh, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico off the Yucatan coast. And, um, kicks up a cloud of iridium uh, that darkens the planet for over a decade. All the dinosaurs disappear. That's where we lost our dinosaurs 65 million years ago. And 70% of life was extinguished. So it was a, a, a massive extinction event. You know, fast forward 65 million years, this is now the sixth event. This is the sixth extinction. But now humans are the equivalent of, a, of an asteroid hit the planet. So we are the event. And so this film is is going to the scientists, the Anthropocene Working Group, and hearing their terminology and their ideas of how they're defining the fact that the epoch, this 12,000 year epoch, which is now still officially the Holocene, what are the things that need to be defined scientifically and with evidence that would say we are now firmly in the Anthropocene? So it's, it's kind of creating a geological marker in time and creating a golden spike is what they call it to say we have now delineated and moved on. The biggest um, kind of, they still, they're still looking for that iridium layer that happened. There's a quarter inch layer that, that precipitated on, onto the planet. And whatever that surface is, they say, aha, this is 65 million years ago when we find this quarter inch lighter band. That's when the dinosaurs disappeared. They're trying to find out what is it uh, that would be that defining factor for, for humans. And they think it's the nuclear testing that happened. The nucleides that have been left are found in corals cut corals, they can find it in the oceans, they can find it at the top of Mount Everest, they can find it in the valleys, everywhere that that evidence Ice. of 
and ice as well. So, 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 so that nuclear radiation that fell out of the over 2,000 nuclear tests that were done uh, while all these countries were coming on to, to uh, nuclear becoming nuclear powers is uh, a signature spike that they think is the most agreed to now. But so essentially what these scientists are trying to do is, is officially change the name. And there's a lot of controversy over it. And there are people who are dead against it. And then there are people who are for it. And as, as given the number of people in the audience here who already know that term, it's a term that is, is percolating down into popular culture anyway with, without you know, the official name change um, from the International Commission on Stratigraphy that would be the body that makes that decision. Um, but for us, it was, I mean, and more than a film, photography, book, you know, there are all these other elements. It was inspiring uh, because it allowed us to, to focus on human incursions and also to try to think in, in what is it like to think in geological time. And this picture here is from Zumaya in Spain. And this, these are, if there are any geologists in the audience, I apologize for the reduction that I'm about to do in terms of this explanation. <laughs> However, there is these, these layers are all, they were once the ocean floor, and uh, through tectonic shifts have been pushed up into these incredible cliffs. Um, each one of those layers represents about 10,000 years. So when you look at it, you are looking at 60 million years of Earth's history in, in one place. You can just stand there and you're looking at 60 million years. And interestingly, human civilization, all of human civilization has happened in one of those layers. So, so when you think about that and go, okay, well, so that, that's how it, it, it creates a kind of humility or it, 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 it inspires a bit of humility at the same time the impact that we have had as a species in this tiny, tiny part of, of the Earth's history uh, is on a geological scale, is on a, a par with the extinction event, um, uh, it, it, with the Cretaceous, the KT boundary with the dinosaurs. So we're trying to explore what it is to think in geological time and also then to look at uh, what, what we have done um, what we are doing. And the scientists have been looking at a number of different categories as possible proof. This is a working group that's been tasked with proving to their very conservative governing body that there's enough evidence to basically change every textbook in the world and rename our epoch in the geological timescale. That's kind of interesting. But um, their categories are probably the most interesting to us because we don't want to make a Discovery Channel science documentary but when they talk about um, all of uh, the anthroturbation, which is the tunnels that we dig in the earth that will be there for tens of millions of years in, in the geological record, when they look at uh, all of the silt that we move, all of the terraforming, and they argue maybe agriculture should be the, the marker, these are, these are things that tap right into what interests us. And so that allows us then to take these categories of research that they're doing and basically go around the world and try and, and uh, experience through lens-based media uh, uh, representations of those and, and bring them together and aggregate them in this, in this project. Which in some ways what Ed has been doing, you know, all along. So, so this is a big, uh, big assignment you've set yourselves. <laughs> to represent, to, to, to help us experience, as you use that word now several times, um, and to, to, to kind of bring an experience forward of geological time. So 
how are you going to do that? <laughs> That's the big secret. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I, I think that so thinking with, in that scale ideas, like even like at first when I went to China, it's like how do you begin? So you, I started with a dam, and then the dam led me to the factories, and then that led me to the cities, and then it led me to urban sprawl, and on and on. So. So in a way, you start the journey, and then water was similar. Like, how do you begin to define water? How do you actually begin to speak about it? And it's also a, a, you know, a massive thing to grapple with, but then you start to define the ways in which you go from a general idea to a specific place. And so often, that information is coming from, where's a, a visual example that's really good with, with scale, where it works, where functionally we can, we can tell the story, and, and you don't need a lot of words to explain it, in that it's embedded, it's encoded in the visual. So if you look at both films, they're still very sparsely, you know, uh, spoken, you know, throughout the films. And we kind of hope to do that again. And and it, again, it's looking, for instance, where you know, tunneling is interesting. It's looking at where, uh, you know, of course, the oil industry is. And that's something I've worked with a lot. Where's an interesting place to show that as well? So it is going back over some material, but. Now we're collaborating together and saying, filmically, where could that work? Is there still another still for me to make there? Do I harvest some of my older stills as well? So it's, it's really a lot of different moving parts. And we have a kind of a, a map, and we have a, a, like a war room, and we have all these images that we find on the web or that I've had from my past, and we're finding the categories, and we just sit there and debate, where are we going, how do we do this? And, and, and it also leads us to, to the idea of the different technologies that are what medium do we use for this experience? What is the most salient medium? Um, and, and, and these lens-based media that are, are uh, proliferating. And, and anyway, we can talk about that. Well, I mean, you're, there's certainly, it sounds like, from the, the, what you've told me, in any case, that you're pushing beyond the media that you're each comfortable in or have worked in or are kind of letting the, I suppose, they the innovators, other innovators sort of lead you, lead you on, but at the same time you're trying to figure out um, for now and for the future how best to do this. So what are some of, what are some of those things? You're well, and, and some of the stuff that we're developing now, there is no technology for it yet. Yeah. So we're just hoping that by the time that we get to that, that, that the end of that road, or even in a year's time, that the technology will have caught up with some of this. Sure. So maybe we can show we do that? I know that VR is one of yeah, the ways so, that you're working so there, on virtual reality. So there's, there's uh, at the core of uh, VR is, is uh, photogrammetry, and that's where I became interested in, in, in the idea of uh, the third dimension in photography. I call it kind of uh, photography 3.0, and the, the first iteration of photography was a chemical lens-based uh, medium with, with, with papers and largers. That disappeared, and then it went digital, so all of that, and then it became transmittable, and, and, and the whole industry changed. And now, with the same cameras that you're taking pictures, two-dimensional pictures, uh, you can now do a suite of pictures of an object, put them into software, and it creates a very accurate uh, three-dimensional representation of that object. So it's now taking, and I was, I've been fascinated with that for quite some time. Uh, and about four years ago, I opened up a 3D lab uh, next to Ryerson and had been working in, in, in the world of 3D, but more like 3D printing. And also with the digital, in the two-dimensional side of it, I've also been using uh, uh, 
my high-res cameras now, I've just recently uh, ended up with a 100 megapixel Hasselblad. I was working with 60 megapixel. But also being able to um, take 20 images and stitch them together and to create these massive files that allow uh, one to experience this kind of, like, like quarries, we went back to Prayer Marble Quarries, and here I'm showing in that little red square, uh, you know, what I've done here is I've taken a, uh, a Canon camera and with a 50 mega, megapixel back, done about 200 shots uh, of, of this, but with a, a piece of equipment called a round shot, which just overlaps and just shoots a, a whole range of them. You put it into software, Photoshop basically, and then you create these files. So that little square is the detail. So technically I could take this picture, it's about a 10 gigabyte printer file. So you can take this picture and blow it up, you know, 15 feet high, 30 feet wide, and you'd be able to walk up to it as you would to one of my prints or whatever and have that kind of detail present. So that was really exciting to do. And then now I took the same technology, put it, put the 100 megapixel on a drone this is 20 shots stitched together from a drone because we can geo-lock the drone in space. I find my location. I then take about 20 shots, put them together, and create uh, uh, this you know, big printer file. And this is, again, me with uh, the, the kind of technology that we've been engaging with. Uh, and, and basically, I go out with a drone like this with a wide-angle lens, find the picture that I want, bring it down, take the wide-angle lens off, put on a telephoto lens, re rebalance it all, send it back up to the exact spot where I, uh, I <coughs> geo-lock for the, for the, uh, um, with the wide-angle, and then start to shoot a whole grouping of pictures that, that can then be you know, displayed in a massive, this is one I did at the Brickworks, and you can walk right up to the picture, look at everybody on the street. I haven't done it, but there's probably a half a million people in this picture, this is Lagos, one of the fastest growing slums and, and cities in the world, and about 6,000 new citizens are coming in every day, attaching themselves on the periphery of the city. So to me, I'm there because of this phenomenal uh, event of a, a, a fast-growing city in Africa and uh, in Nigeria. So, so this is another way to experience it. So we're, this is a, a, my second iteration, testing it out to see how well it works and. And in fact, now we've, I, I, in this particular installation, I had a pair of binoculars about you know, 20 feet away from it. And it really feels like we're standing on a balcony of, of, of a seven-story building looking out. You can see thousands and hundreds of thousands of people in the background uh, and, you know, doing their daily, daily chores. So that, that to me was uh, a really fascinating way to extend a still. So that's one thing we're doing. The other thing that in the photogrammetry that I was saying is, okay, here's the tusk piles. Those of you uh, who may not know the story, uh, in, um, in Kenya, uh, in Nairobi, there was uh, a, a huge backlog of, of the uh, a warehouse full of tusks, over 100 tons, and about $150 million worth in, in market value. Kenyatta, the president, said, I want to set an example, we're going to burn them in this kind of huge burn. 11 piles were then constructed like this, and this is Kenyatta's, the president's pile. So all the big tuskers, all the biggest tusks were put onto this pile. And then I'm, of course, still shooting with my still. This is the day after they burned. I'm doing stills. We're doing drones and flying a red camera, like a motion picture camera, through there. 
also doing, uh, um, you know, the camera just for doing the, for film work, a high resolution film camera, doing stuff off the ground. And we're constantly working together uh, and collaborating on the frame. This is now shoot, uh, sending a drone to do a shot of, uh, of uh, a thing called a bagger in Germany, a large machine. But the other thing that I found interesting is the extension of what I was doing is in photography, these are two 40 megapixel Sony cameras. We're triggering them, I'm triggering them both at one time um, using triggers and taking about over 2,000 pictures of this tusk pile on an overcast day. You can see it's cloudy, it has to be overcast. And this is us showing us working it. We had to go way up to the top, shoot straight down into it. We have, you have to get in and around every tusk. And then we throw it into a piece of software that then takes these 2,000 images and stitches them together. So they're just images like this, but closer, further away, and then we put it all together, and this ends up becoming a um, polygon uh, structure that then you can wrap the, uh, the image texture all the way around it. So you can do a texture map and put it on that. This is about two million polygons. Uh, the actual resolution of the files that I was um, the, able to take and put into this software, we could do uh, a billion polygons. So we can continue making this higher and higher resolution. Uh, we're only using 2% of that here. And this is a texture map. So now this is what I would go into Photoshop and I would color correct this, contra con contrast correct it, look at it and get the color and feel of it right. And then here is actually uh, a video. This is now the three-dimensional recreation of the tusk pile that you can then put on in a VR headset, walk around it at scale, and experience it in a way that goes well beyond a photograph. So now you, this for all time is now recorded as a moment in time, as a portrait of this tusk pile the day before it was burned. So to me, it's a very interesting way to begin to think of photography in the third dimension. And in the 3D lab, I've taken that same file. This is now a 3D print, a full color 3D printer. I can now layer by layer recreate the file and, um, and be able to make a print. This is about eight inches by eight inches uh, and about uh, eight inches high as well. Actually, more like 10 by 10 by eight inches high. So that's a, a kind of where some of the technology is leading me. And oftentimes people say, as a photographer, why? Why are you interested in 3D? Because I can now use that same lens-based media and start to work in the third dimension. And this can be deployed in AR and VR and, and can be experienced in many ways on your phone, et cetera, et cetera. And, it, and it's philosophically interesting too because it's a, it, it, it's a three-dimensional virtual sculpture and the idea of virtual reality, but it doesn't exist anymore because it was burned. And it was burned for the reasons of, you know, um, trying to send a message about the ivory trade and the fact that elephants will, you know, um, probably go extinct within 25 years. And so the, the idea of this real, not real, there, not there, um, there's something really interesting about, about that. And because our work has always tried to be experiential, to take people to places they're connected to or responsible for, but would never normally see, and then what kind of a transformation happens when you're in that place, um, uh, when you're in the, you know, the 
the, the tanneries, when you're in the mines, when you're in the, you know, the biggest dams in the world, places that we are all connected to. Uh, this, is a, this is another iteration of that. This is an extension of that. And what does that do to your consciousness um, to, to actually you know, witness? How many elephants does that represent again? Well, there were 11 piles, um, so there's about 1,000 elephants, uh, tusks, about 2,000 tusks per pile. And it's, then it's also slightly vertiginous, I would say, because we have these new uh, incredible technologies that we're very excited about. Um, and and uh, I think you need to constantly be looking at what's out there and what's available for this kind of, of, of storytelling. And yet we can build this file. And what Jen was saying earlier maybe wasn't clear, but the technology to really experience it doesn't exist yet, um, or at least it's you know, there's a lot of investment dollars going into the virtual reality world and it's being driven by gaming and a lot of the more prosaic things that often have driven photography and other, other technologies, you know, other media technologies through the ages. Uh, but to try and reclaim some of that space um, uh, for something that um, is, is uh, yeah, not, not so prosaic, I think, is, is one of the ambitions of this project. What do you think? So there's an incredible amount of technical and uh, sort of, you know, there's so much effort that goes into it all. There's a billion polygons. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine. In fact, um, and you're I mean you're you're getting there, but I think I want to push it a little bit more. It's like why go to all this trouble to create and this three-dimensional image that we can experience maybe. If, if the technology catches up with the desire to represent it. Um, what do you hope for? for, for what, what do you hope that experience is going to deliver to the viewer who does well, well, the it? first thing I would say is the technology will arrive. It's just a few more machine generations, and Moore's Law will allow a deeper and deeper and more rich experiencing of that kind of object. So we are future-proof this by having it as high-res as it is. So that allows us to kind of say, at, no matter how good the technology gets, it'll literally probably, this has enough uh, you know, image resolution power that with a headset that can make a kind of, that can actually project or even a viewer that has the resolution of reality, I think ultimately this will be very close. This can go close to the resolution of reality that you went and you can see every nick and scratch and, 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 and bit of lettering and writing and color. So I think that's the interesting thing, uh, that this will probably never happen again. I, I doubt it. Uh, you know, I, I think it was like a one-off. Uh, and, and, and to me, it's, it's uh, again, the power of photography over time. It, it does become um, you know, engaging, and I think that leaving, <coughs> leaving these kinds of uh, marks behind, uh, that, that as an, as an um, artist, I've been always interested in leaving marks that somehow are, are, are set with meaning, but that meaning is flexible. That can, it can speak about many things. Um, so you can look at this tusk pile as, you know, a lot of poachers trying to make a living to feed their families. It's also elephants at great risk because their you know, population is dropping at 12% a year. One of the things, you know, humans driving the extinction event, because that's ultimately why we ended up here is that we are driving one of the greatest extinction events. So this is a way to speak to that event and to, say, to show something that is powerful 
and it puts us as the main character humans and our needs and desires and for, for brooches made of ivory or anything else that we do with ivory. And, and so all of those things are somehow embodied in this. And so that, that to, that, that's again a meaningful object like, I, like we try to search for meaning in, in prints as well. I mean, we, we talk about, we've talked in the past about being revelatory rather than accusatory or being experiential rather than didactic, mainly because the whole project of Manufactured Landscape, which started us on this path together, was be, because it the, somehow the combination of the photographs and what Ed's photographs have done and then extending that into film and having this, uh, people be profoundly moved without being preached at or without being, you know, Argue to uh, there was there was something there about shifting consciousness from a different place, and uh, because so that this journey began there, and this feels like the logical extension of what we have done together in film, what Ed has done in photography, what we have done, Nick and I have done in video installation, it, 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 taking it to a different level, and it's tricky because this stuff is very technological. It's it, it is driven by gaming. It is it's seductive in itself. We don't want the tail to wag the dog. We want to be able to try to use these technologies to create sort of even more profound experiences. And I think, you know, the something about the, the idea of, of uh, a, a geological epoch named after a species and the, the idea that every textbook in the world would immediately become obsolete if the name was changed. So, you, all of a sudden people are, would be teaching it in school and what that does for earth system scientists and the, the potential for dissemination or the, the way that that idea becomes saturated in consciousness um, for us feels like a meaningful um, uh, journey to make and to, to try to bring that uh, into a wide understanding, to try to bring this term that say a third uh, 30% or 40% of people in this room understand, to try to make everybody understand what that means. And that maybe is the beginning. Shifting of consciousness is the beginning of change. Well, and I'm struck by the this, since the 19th century, there's been a drive, you know, in photography to try and bring us to the place, to make you, you know, the stereo viewers, the stereoscopes, to try to get you to the place, to feel like you, uh, you have forgotten your current environment and you were transported somewhere. This, it uh, seems such, such an extension of that quest. Um, and it seems to pop up at different moments in time. And I think what you describe is a really kind of, I think uh, you're, you're describing the urgency of why this technology could be put to this use now, this sense of an empathy um, born out of an intimacy, born out of a closeness being brought literally closer to it. And people do call it. I was naturally, uh, I'm somewhat skeptical of these things, and then I fully drank the Kool-Aid when I, um, uh, we had a visit to Google, who we have a partnership on one of their 3D virtual reality cameras, and I was uh, completely transported, and, and I mean, my disbelief was suspended for me by putting on this technology. Um, uh, and so, all of a sudden, uh, there was this new challenge out there to engage with this that, that just couldn't, couldn't be ignored. And we have to be careful not to be gimmicky uh, and not to use it uh, in, a, in a superficial way because it's new and, and kind of neat. Um, and so, in our moments of mindfulness, I, I think 
it, it really does extend the project as it's been going on for, for quite a while now in that it is ultimately so experiential. Um, and that's what often the ambition has been in the films. We put all of our resources into the sound, the picture that really uh, takes you somewhere um, that uh, has a more direct emotional or visceral connection. So it's not, it's not an intellectual, it's not an informational uh, moment, which film can do very well, um, but that hopefully there's a deeper understanding and, and then a deeper transformation that happens more in that realm like you get in an art gallery. Um, uh, and, and that this is a new, a new challenge, I think, to add to uh, the, the ways of telling these stories that, that we've done before, um, that is a, it's a welcome one. And I think it's just one more tool, I think, in a, in a, in a toolkit of being able, and as long as I, I think, as, and we all, I think, feel that as long as we stick to the, the conceptual threads and the kind of subjects that we've already engaged with, with my stills and with the film, and that, that that's going to kind of keep the bumpers on it from getting gimmicky or we're just trying to still stay very true to, to the subject matter and to the ideas and allow the technology to help kind of engage the viewer in ways that are exciting. And in particularly, we're also, you know, we both, you know, we have kids, and, you know, 18, 20, younger. And I think the kids, the younger, you know, people are gonna be wanting these experiences. This is their exciting new world that's emerging, and it's, a, it's got problems, and it's, it's there. So we also see that this can also be very easily deployed educationally and to, to really engage with younger uh, people who, who need to know about what's happening. Yeah, they call VR the empathy tool because of the fact that it is so, you're right here, you're in this moment. Um, and it's kind of overwhelming. Sometimes it's kind of scary uh, to be so immersed. Uh, but that's, it, it's a very, it's an intriguing possibility. For sure, it raises so many questions. Um, I'm thinking that might be a good time to run the clip from uh, the, so this is. This is just some, just to set this up, it's just some footage of what we have already filmed for, for Anthropocene, the film. It's not a trailer, but it shows some of the locations that we have uh, been to and also uh, uh, some of the scientists from the Anthropocene Working Group are speaking through it. Acceleration starts with the 
slide just to cue if you could cue that up um, wow it's uh, it's I've seen that more than once now and it still strikes me as the enormity of it you managed to communicate that somehow in, in the sites you've chosen and the angles you've chosen and the moving in from the ground and beyond um, the, I think one of the, you spoke about ethics earlier, Jennifer, I think one of the questions that has come up about is, you know, we are, we are here, we're in Toronto, you've traveled the world to do this. Um, you know, what, tell us more about how you, th how you think this through from the, from the standpoint of our privileged perspective. Yeah, it's a really um, huge question for us and always has been in the 20 years that we've been making films together, especially because we do travel all over the world, and it's very easy to sort of parachute in to context and, and uh, tell a prescribed story about them or use them as part of the narrative of a prescribed story. And one of the ways that we have always worked, which then also intersects with the way that Ed's photographs work uh, by being non-didactic, uh, we never work with a script. We often, we go into a context, we do tons of research in advance, and then go into a context and try to be there as authentically as possible with our perspective and also let the, the context speak to us in terms of what that content is. And it's not the easiest way to work and we often have you know, hundreds of hours of material as a result, um, but it, it, it is the only way for me to ethically engage. And, and my own background is, is I, I come from a, a bicultural background. My father was from India, my mother is British. And um, as a result, I never really had a sense of a dominant collective identity. And I used to lament that. And then actually it has become very important in my work as a filmmaker because I'm, I'm, I'm used to 
uh, not looking at things from the dominant view, from the center, but actually from the margins. And the marginal perspective is often so illuminating of the center in ways that you would never imagine. And so, for example, Watermark, you know, we could have gone to scientific experts to talk about why the Colorado River is dry and why the Delta is dry and damming, et cetera. But we actually, the person who speaks for the Colorado River is Donna Innocencia, who lives there, whose community has been decimated, fishing community, by the fact um, that the Delta is dry. And so, to me, the ethical engagement in, in production, in research, in production, and in editing is, is the most important element of what we do. And when we are, uh, for example, in the gigapixel photography that we're thinking about, there are these wide views taken from you know, a, a drone. There has to be an on-the-ground engagement that goes with that wide view. There has to be a, a way of following narratives. The person who is walking through the street with their groceries, who is living in that place, we have to have an understanding of that that goes with this it's kind of a dialectic of scale and detail in a way, but it's also um, a dialectic that brings, uh, you know, kind of back and forth that brings an empathetic connection uh, between the viewer and the subject. And so it's, it's very preoccupying, especially in this context, because in this film, where all of the places we go to, like, well, like the others, like Watermark, where we went all over the world, that we are um, coming from the right place and conveying what is the truth, not truth in an objective sense, but what is the truth of this place and how are we all implicated in it? Yes, I'm very much struck by that and, and uh, the sense that perhaps what the project will deliver is, is a greater sense of how we are, I hope anyway, how we are connected, how, it, how we can't escape that connection or that impact we've made. Um, I could, I, could, I, could, I could add something to that. Oftentimes people um, would kind of ask me, well, why aren't there more people in your pictures? What, what, you know, that you seem to have this distance. And, and the interesting thing about film is, if we try to make a film from that point of view without going on the ground and having voices speak about their world or what's happened and how it's changed, then, then the, the film would become disembodied. But, but my project for 35 years is not so much a landscape photography, it happens to occur in the landscape, but my work has largely been about human systems deployed in the landscape. So these are large-scale industrial intentional landscapes, nothing, very little of what I show is non-intentional, it's meant to be. This is, somebody's got a license to do this, to clear this forest, to mine this land, to build this city there, whatever. So these are intentional landscapes, these are a consequence of 7.5 billion people living on the planet. So, so what I'm looking at is a collective impact and my images are more about a lament for the loss of nature to the hand of, by the hand of man than it is, and it says that so much in the, in the end of Watermark is that it's been a, a, a long lament for the loss of natural habitat of a, the, this other world at our, you know, at our hand. And so, and it's trying to bring attention to that, that this, this is now, you know, a, a bigger and bigger issue. It wasn't, I, I wasn't as concerned 35 years ago when I started the work, but as we see what's happening, the concern is growing almost daily that, 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 that we're hitting a, a, a point where there may, may be no return. 
think there's so much more. There's so much more to say. I have a million more questions, but I think probably I should stop asking questions myself and let some of you ask questions. So there are a couple of people in the audience here with, with microphones. Kathleen is there. Annie is at the back. If you have a question, please raise your hand and someone will get a microphone to you. We're not hearing the mic uh, from the left side of the house. Maybe yeah. Annie's will work. Sorry. Uh, it's going. It's up. Um, I just have a question for, uh, I guess it's related to what Ed just said about how, um, how at the end of Watermark you felt like it was a lament for what is now gone as far as nature is concerned. My favorite aspect, I guess personally, about both of the films is that despite my own agenda, maybe you could say, or opinions, I never felt as though, I, I felt like what was most persuasive, persuasive about it is that I never got a sense outright that any of you were trying to push your perspectives on the audience. And I felt like that's what made them some of the most effective environmental films that I've ever seen. Was that fully intentional? Was that the goal going into the making of these films? And if so, what do you think uh, were some of the strategies that you tried to employ to ensure that you didn't push too much of your own perspective on to the viewers? Because not every viewer is necessarily going to be an environmentalist, but I think the majority of people who are going to see these types of films are bound to have that perspective already uh, planted in their minds. We get grief uh, for not being more... Um, more polemic and activist uh, sometimes. And so um, uh, I think it's even more important that we stick to our guns. And thank you, because it's, a, I think, a really great articulation of the, the ambition of, of how we make these. And we've touched on it. It's, it's, um, it's really uh, to try and create a, a, a bigger arena and a broader conversation than the established environmental discourse, where people, I think, they just plug in and, and the hope is that um, more people have seen these films uh, who aren't just environmentalists um, and have maybe had a personal transformation and a, a transformation that's as different as all the people who have seen it. I mean, uh, as soon as we're divided into camps and we seem to be living in an increasingly polarized world in, in lots of ways, uh, economically, politically, certainly, um, th those, those are silos that I think need to be broken down in the face of this of this um, real urgent situation. Yeah, and there, you know we live in a culture where the the capacity for or the opportunities for sustained reflection are decreasing, <laughs> moment by moment, and so um, it, it's kind of like slowing somebody's heart rate down <laughs> when you you go into that into that experience, and you you have to kind of relax into it and, and allow it to wash over you in a way um, instead of being told what to think. And, and I think it's a, uh, that way, it, it, we do get criticized for it a lot. You know, we're, you're fiddling while Rome is burning kind of thing. Like, where, how come you're not like, you know, uh, pushing people to act? Well, the, the, the beginning of a change, the beginning of action is 
a change in consciousness. And if you can do that at a profound level, um, it feels to me like there's something uh, useful and meaningful about that. And one of the ways that I measure that I find useful at times is that if you look at kind of the big kind of polemics or the big extremes from rich to poor that are expanding from left and right or religious, non-religious, that, that if within the spectrum of the extremes in each one and right through the middle, not, no one's offended, anybody can see it and not be offended, then I, I really feel that the films now entered into more of a philosophical point of, uh, of, of thinking about the, th the world we're creating. And it's not pointing a finger, it's just through showing, not telling, you, you know, the, the, the message permeates. And I, and I think that that is, is one, of the, one of the ways that I like to think about it, that we, we don't want anybody necessarily offended, but, but it's something that uh, has the ring of truth to it, and it has the power of the image and the imaging of our world in a way that most people don't get to those places. And we're showing them in a way that may be startling and, and otherworldly, but yet it's there. And it's connected to us. Uh, yes, thank you for your conversation. It's been very interesting. I was surprised that you um, talked so much about technology, which I thought was terribly interesting. But words that were missing, which I um, find incredibly important to your work, is beauty, the sublime, the aesthetic. And um, I was even surprised that you talked a lot about exposition and telling the stories. But the image itself is something that's not just about story. But, and so I want you to talk a bit about how, you know, the sublime, when I look at those images, it's beautiful. Like, you, you never use those words. And I think isn't, you know, um, it was interesting, the Colorado River both captivated the paradox of the beauty of that image and the tragedy. So in, in what way do you think that through those things, obviously you did, but I just wanted you to speak about that. Well, I, I, I've always kind of, if you go back to my work, and I think some of it's migrated as well in film, and, and I know that Peter Mather and, and Nick have an incredible eye as well, but, but the idea of how do you transcribe uh, you know, these worlds, and in a way, sometimes people have said to me, you know, uh, why, do you, why do you show these terrible things in such a kind of beautiful or aesthetic way, and I, and I, back and I say, well, if you really mean that, what do you mean by terrible places? If you really, if, if, if that's what you mean, then when you look at your city and when you look at your life and the car you get into, then you should see them as terrible things as well. This is a consequence of 7.5 billion people needing things from nature in some way, and this is the scale it has taken to do that. This, we, have, we don't have a lot of options. So in a way that if I, and I've done a lot of photographs of cities, and I'd wait for the light, I'd wait for it so that there's a way to invite you in to want to spend time with the image. If you, if I made like really ugly images and the minute you look at it, you avert your eyes because you know, it was badly done and awful sun on it and it hasn't been considered or poorly framed. And those are the other options of making an image. But I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be on this stage if I showed those kinds of images. <laughs> Uh, um, and, and so I, you know, so it is like 
uh, to me it's storytelling, and it's funny that in other mediums, like even in film, like I often point out like, Apocalypse Now is beautifully shot. It's a terrible story. Uh, you know, uh, Shakespeare wrote, you know, Richard III and Macbeth in beautiful prose, and no one ever questioned that it was wrapped in beautiful prose. But if you take stills of our world, of places that are troubling, and show them in a way that's aesthetic, it all of a sudden seems to be an ethical question that it seems to bring up. And, and to me, that's a very interesting point. It's a, it's a kind of an extra uh, uh, load that photography has to carry uh, in that kind of ethical, uh, what, what is an ethical way to approach um, you know, troubling areas and how aesthetics plays within that interpretation. But I do feel that you know, that engagement, when people, okay, where is this? What is this? Why am I looking at it? Why would somebody take a picture of a pile of tires or of a quarry or of a mine, because when I was doing that, nobody was really taking those pictures. Uh, so I was going to these places, uh, and my mother kept saying, why? why? <laughs> Who wants these pictures, you know? Uh, I said, I didn't know. But, one, day, but, one day somebody will like them. But you know, it, it is true, and I don't think it's a criticism, Ed. I think the, the ambiguity is the power. There, there is, these, these photographs are incredibly seductive aesthetically and and the process of transformation that happens when you realize that you're looking at garbage um, or whatever and and the revulsion or that combination of, of seduction and revulsion that's where the power lies and certainly our cue in the films has been like that opening silt release is, is like it's very turner-esque it's it's meant I mean when you look at the colors there and also you don't know what you're looking at for a long time and you think you're looking at something that's natural and then you realize, no, this is a human created uh, silt release on, the, uh, uh, on a dam in China. But it, it, there is, that is the, the, the source of the power and we go to great lengths, um, not only to get to these places that nobody goes to, but then to find a way of conveying them that is um, inviting, that is beautiful. Well, I guess the challenge you have before you is how to use VR, AR, and the new ways that you're working to try and deliver that same impact, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because if you look, when I, when I go and work on composing a photograph, as Jen said, I'll often wait hours and hours or go another day for light. I will you know, go, go to a great lengths for the light to be right because it's often about not just the point of view, but the light, the time of year often. I'll go back at another time of year. And I think, you know, I think that's what, you know, separates what I do when I go in the field from what a more journalistic kind of going in there, you get the story and you leave. It's more of this kind of contemplative approach and trying to, again, build, uh, build the image and find, find those kind of moments where, where, it, that where you take banality and, and it transcends into something. It's not just an image of a banal world. It has something else that it possesses. And our big issue, I think, from entering into VR is now you're in a complete immersive space. You don't control exactly where you look. So how do you create that transcendent, transformative space in this new technology? And that, to me, is a real interesting challenge as an artist. Can't wait to see it. Haven't cracked that yet. Yeah. So we are unfortunately at time. I know the room is packed with questions, but I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Nick, Ed, Jennifer, and Sophie for this remarkable conversation. I'm really looking forward to seeing how the project unfolds. Thank you. Thank you.